As I say, week in and week out, if you're new, thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm the guy who gets the privilege most Sundays of opening the scriptures with God's people as we gather in this place. And, and it really is a privilege, and not just on the biggest days of the Christian calendar, um, which, which this most certainly would be, right? Easter Sunday. I don't know how you view Easter Sunday coming into this place this morning. Easter Sunday's always been a little bit of an enigma to me as a kid who grew up in and out of the church. Um, I remember putting on my Sunday best most Easter's and Christmases, wondering why it mattered that my tie was straight when every other day of my existence was with me and my family in effort to scrap just to get by. And, and why Easter and Christmas? That was always a question too. Why those two particular church services? Does God give bonus points for the high holidays on the Christian calendar, double mileage rewards for the journey to heaven? Like, how does this thing work? Those were things that I was trying to, to wrap my mind around as a kid. It was strange to me. I was perfectly content to stand on the outside looking in on the church. And yet every Easter, I was there. I could not escape Easter Sunday. Maybe that's how you feel this morning as you come into this place. Maybe this is the last place that you wanna be, but for some culturally strange reason, you're here. Regardless of what brings you into this place this morning, I'm glad you're here, and there are a lot of people in this room that are glad that you're here too, if this is unique for you to be with us. To the doubter, I cannot promise you this morning that every question rooted in skepticism will be answered. To the jaded, I cannot promise you that every deep-rooted frustration toward God and or the church will be diffused. To the open and honest, I can't even promise you that you won't meet a few fake plastic people before you leave this place when all is said and done. What I can promise you is the gospel, the good news of a risen and crucified Savior, and why the empty tomb matters so much. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. It's where we'll be this morning, verses 36 through 53. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the rows uh, in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you come in and you don't own a Bible or the possession that you happen to own is difficult to track with in terms of translation, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Happy Easter and uh, enjoy that. Let me, let me pray for us and, and ask um, the Spirit of God to move mightily uh, during our time this morning in the scriptures. Jesus, the very fact that we could begin a prayer with your name is a declaration that you're not dead, that we don't come in this place as foolish people singing to a dead hero, that we don't sing to a man who died 2,000 years ago uh, never to be heard from again, how foolish that would be. But yet, we declare your name in prayer this morning. We declare your name in song this morning. Your name will be declared through the pulpit ministry of the church this morning. And we will celebrate you through the receiving of communion later on after this sermon is said and done with. The fact that we would throw your name around this place is a declaration that you are indeed alive. 
I pray this morning as we open up the scriptures together that we would see the many benefits of your resurrection, that we would see that this is not just a a dead orthodox theological doctrine, something to believe that has no merit or purpose in our lives, but rather that, that we would see just by way of all of the benefits and beauties of what the resurrection has secured for us this morning, that we would see the folly of what it is to come together only on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection and no other Sunday that we would see the folly of coming together just on Sundays and not realizing that Monday through Saturday, every single week has implications as it pertains to your resurrection and what you've secured for us. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see that which you want us to see, that you would open our ears to hear that which you want us to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive it all by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, we're desperate for you to move this morning as we're going to talk about just moments from now, the, the fact that Jesus has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father means that he has sent the Holy Spirit, and thus we can cry out your name, Holy Spirit, this morning and ask you to move in power. The same Spirit alive and well as we as a church have been working through the book of Acts for several months now and have seen you at work in power 2,000 years ago, you're the same Holy Spirit today. And so I pray this morning, as we gather together in this place, as we open up the scriptures, Spirit of God, that you would stir, that you would move mightily in our midst. I'm just a man. I'm just a fragile jar of clay, but I've got the beauty of the gospel to declare, and I pray this morning that it would be powerful and impactful for all of your people, myself included. Give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach in these moments to come. In the name of the risen Jesus, I pray. Amen. So the last chapter of Luke's gospel account, if you're not familiar with it, it's a great Easter Sunday passage. Not only does it include an account of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene and friends finding the empty tomb, the famous picture of the stone rolled away, but it also includes the famous encounter on the road to Emmaus where the risen Jesus shows a couple of really bummed out disciples in the wake of his crucifixion that he's the hero of the entire Old Testament, causing their hearts to burn within them. It's the last part of Luke 24 that seems to get the least amount of press, and yet the final 18 verses, which we're going to look at this morning, reveal something incredibly significant pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To paint a picture of the scene, the disciples on the road to Emmaus have returned to Jerusalem and are joyfully sharing their experience of having encountered the risen Jesus with a dozen or so of their friends. And as we pick up in verse 36 of Luke 24, it says this, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The the recording of these words might not seem like a a big deal at first glance, just a, a continuation of the resurrection story of Luke chapter 24. But in these words lies the critical doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the Greek philosophers in in the early church were peddling this idea that the spirit is good and the body is bad. And so if you can just escape the body, certain things wouldn't be a struggle for you anymore. Things like gluttony or drunkenness or lust or murder. 
Things that are hard to pull off when you don't have a physical body, right? Which is where some came up with the idea that, that Jesus' resurrection was, it was metaphorical. It was physical or spiritual, I should say. That, that Jesus resurrected in our hearts, but not in his body. Well, according to the scriptures, according to Luke 24, Jesus wasn't just raised spiritually, but bodily. Jesus had a resurrection body. His nail-scarred hands and feet could be touched. His flesh and bones body could digest broiled fish. Like the resurrected Jesus could come to a good old southern fish fry, and he can enjoy it just like you and me. Which has massive implications, not only for our resurrection for the dead, as he sets the pattern for our resurrection bodies, but also the doctrine of the new heaven and earth, meaning that God's not scrapping planet earth and starting over any more than the physical body of Jesus Christ was scrapped. That God will someday transform the entire physical created order, which he pronounced good in the beginning, just as Jesus's physical body was transformed through the resurrection. We're not gonna fly off like fluttery little chubby winged babies and play harps on clouds. He's gonna transform this world as we know it. But there's even more at stake when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus than those things. And the resurrection of Jesus is certainly what Easter Sunday is about. So I think it would be appropriate for us to look at some of those things. That if Jesus has not been raised, the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 are incredibly sobering. And considering the massive implications of the resurrection, if Jesus has not been raised, according to the Apostle Paul, number one, the declaration of the gospel is worthless. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We should all just go home right now. This exercise called the church gathered is an exercise in futility if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Get yourself a Sunday hobby. There are plenty of lakes around here. Stop wasting your time. Secondly, your faith is worthless if Jesus has not been raised. He says, Continuing on in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. Your faith is empty. Your faith is hollow. If Jesus has not been raised, you've placed your faith in a lie if you're a Christian. You're no different than those who drank the Kool-Aid under the leadership of Jim Jones or one of the many Branch Davidians who followed that wacko out in Waco, David Koresh. Number three, if Jesus has not been raised, you blaspheme the true God. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. It's not just that we're fools for worshiping a false God, but we're blasphemers also for not worshiping the true God, whoever he or she or it happens to be. Number four, if Jesus has not been raised you're still in your sins. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's purposeless, it's ineffectual, and you are still in your sins. Not only would you not benefit from your faith, you'd still be under the curse of God's wrath. That, that, that peace that you experience when you think of all that Jesus has done for you, that peace is out the window. Toss it out. Back to your own efforts to try to merit the love and acceptance of God. Be nicer, be kinder, be better knowing that it'll never be good enough. A child of wrath dead in your trespasses for all eternity, Paul says, essentially. Number five, if Jesus has not been raised, then your loved ones who have passed away in Christ are in an inescapable, hopeless state. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
And, and that's, just not, that's not just the words of annihilationism. It's not the idea that they perish, meaning that they just cease to exist. It's that John 3.16 language of God sending his only son so that we who believe in him should not perish. That, that they're bearing the curse right now, those who have died in Christ. They're not experiencing that which they had hoped for. They're under the weight of God's wrath right now. That comfort that you experienced when they passed away because you knew they loved Jesus, throw that out the window too, Paul says. Number six, and, and this is perhaps the saddest just in language. Number six, if Jesus has not been raised, you're a pitiful, delusional human being. And that's a nice way to put it. First Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied if Jesus has not been raised, Christians are the most pitiful people on planet earth. How sad and pathetic that we devote our lives to something imagined, that we come together to celebrate that something imagined every seven days as we assemble. How sad and pathetic that not only will we not reap the benefits of our beliefs, but we've also forfeited all the pleasures that this world would afford us. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most well-known passages on the implications of the resurrection, and there are a lot of them, right? As Paul makes crystal clear that the resurrection, as you've heard me say before if you've been around for some time, it's the bottom corner piece of the Christian Jenga game. If Jesus has not been raised, game over, Christianity crumbles. Coming back to this morning's passage, Luke 24, Luke does something similar to the apostle Paul, but he comes at it from a different angle. Whereas the Apostle Paul declares what it would be like if Jesus had not been raised. Luke declares two things that are true and glorious because Jesus has been raised. Namely, and these are significant if you're a Christian. Namely, number one, the scriptures are trustworthy. And secondly, the benefits of the indwelling Holy Spirit are ours in Christ. Let's look at those two gifts. Let's start first with the gift of a trustworthy Bible. Coming back to Luke 24, verses 44 through 48 says this, then he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, listen to this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's comprehensive language for everything written about me in the Old Testament. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That what Jesus is saying there, essentially, is that if he didn't rise from the dead, the scriptures can't be trusted. Which speak of the promised Messiah overcoming death. Looking at verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's Easter. right? The, 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 the best we could say... The best, we could say, is that the scriptures are not the problem, but rather that Jesus is not the promised one of scripture, that we're still waiting for him to come, the hero promised in your Old Testament. But the problem with that theory is the sheer number of other prophecies that Jesus actually did fulfill, which is why I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 would use that kind of devastating language. I'll give you just a few of the prophecies. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus had his way prepared by a forerunner in John the Baptist, fulfilling Malachi chapter three, verse one. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Jesus was betrayed by a friend who would lead to the, which would lead to the wounding of his hands, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 13, verse six. 
Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Those 30 pieces of silver were not returned, but went to a potter, fulfilling Zechariah 11:13. 13. Jesus didn't make a defense for himself, though oppressed, afflicted, and on trial for his life, fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 7. And lastly, Jesus was pierced in his hands and feet, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 16. That's just eight of, of the many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament. Peter Stoner, chairman, professor of mathematics and astronomy for a number of universities, and, and also the author of a book entitled Science Speaks, he says this, he says, let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10, right? That's just good grade school math there. He goes on to say, Suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly, he says, all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies that I just shared with you and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time. That based on the sheer fulfillment of every other prophecy aside from the resurrection, Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament declares that the promised one must not only suffer and die, but must also rise from the dead. And Jesus himself says it so much here in Luke chapter 24, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the Old Testament cannot be trusted, and not just the Old Testament, but also the New. Let me take you through a crash course and, and just show you, give you a glimpse of some things. The four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would be a lie because they all give historical account of the resurrection. The book of Acts would be a lie because it begins with an account of the resurrected Jesus meeting with his disciples. The book of Romans would be a lie because it says, Romans chapter six, verse nine, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The book of 1 Corinthians would be a lie because it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The book of 2 Corinthians would be a lie because it says, 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The book of Galatians would be a lie because it says Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The book of Ephesians would be a lie because it talks about Ephesians 1.19, God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The book of Philippians would be a lie because Paul says, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The book of Colossians would be a lie because it says, Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The book of 1 Thessalonians would be a lie because it says 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The book of 2 Timothy would be a lie because it says, 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. The book of 1 Peter would be a lie because it says 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The book of Revelation would be a lie because it quotes Jesus himself as saying, Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. By the way, those are not all of the references of the resurrection in the New Testament, just the most explicit ones. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and and please hear me crystal clear in what I'm saying. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can throw your Bible in the trash can in the back of this auditorium on your way out the door. It's because Jesus rose from the grave that the blessing and benefits of scripture are ours. That what we're doing right now, even in sitting under the preached word of God is not silly. It makes a lot of sense because the Bible is trustworthy. Think about, think about the implications of the trustworthiness of God's word. I'll give you just a few and then you'll fill in the list and say he forgot this one and that one and the other one because there's so many that I couldn't possibly accomplish it all. I'll give you just a handful. Number one, we can trust God himself. Our fate is not in the hands of a God who's capable of lying to us in any given time. Hebrews chapter six, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie and isn't that good news? Secondly, we have a reference point by which to test all other claims to truthfulness. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not just true, it's truth. In our day and age, the world is filled with people who believe that truth is relative, that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, that there is no absolute truth to which I would ask, are you absolutely sure? Like Saying that there is no absolute truth is an absolute statement, right? And what that means is that without absolute truth, the world becomes an incredibly, not only dangerous, but irrational place to live. Thanks be to God that that truth is not some relativistic moving target based on personal experience or tradition or culture or autonomous human reason. That's terrifying. Scripture gives us a reference point by which to test all other claims to truthfulness. Number three, we have a greater understanding of God and the hope of salvation, which is not to say that God doesn't reveal himself in other ways. He most certainly does. Yes, nature tells us something of God's eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Yes, the the rains and the harvest reveal God's mercy and love, Acts chapter 14. Yes, we can even know something of the wrongfulness of our sin, Romans chapters 1 and 2. But but we're still left to speculate on much of who God is and, and what he's like. Not to mention that we would know nothing of saving faith apart from God's divine words of promise. That without the, the scriptures, we wouldn't know that, that salvation requires that God must die. Who would dream that up apart from the Bible? Like, we wouldn't know that mercy and justice must meet at Mount Calvary, which we celebrated a couple days ago during our Good Friday service. It's scripture that tells us of the hope of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the crucified and risen Jesus alone. 
Number four, we're not soul starved. We have the nourishing diet necessary for the health of our souls. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That God has given us his soul nourishing word. He's given us the spiritual milk that our thirsty souls are desperate for in his word, in the scriptures. Number five, we have a guide for sanctification. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, very famous passage. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you've been around for more than just a few Sundays, you've, you've probably heard me give this example before that when you, when you see the law, when you see the commands of God in scripture, they really exist for three purposes. Number one, to show us our desperate need for Jesus Christ as a savior that they show us as we look in the mirror the dirtiness of, of the human condition and our desperate need for Jesus to die in our place for our sins and to rise from the grave conquering Satan, sin, and death. So they show us our need for a savior, the commands, the law of scripture. Secondly, they restrain evil without some sort of moral compass which, which comes under the banner of living under a, a God which creates, who creates morality. We're, we're not as wicked of a society as we could be. And then thirdly, the, the law, the commands of God function as a guide, as a roadmap for Christians towards sanctification, which is actually not just uh, for God's glory, but also for our joy. The, the illustration I've used before is, is the one of a kid in an ice cream shop with his parents. Like I'm, I'm envisioning myself going into a, an ice cream shop with my children. I have two daughters, one's three, one's four they barely know how to handle an ice cream cone. And so they need to be told, don't drop the ice cream cone. Don't throw the ice cream cone. It's meant to stay in your hand. Um, don't eat it from the bottom up. That's not gonna go well for you. You're gonna lose most of the ice cream cone if you do it that way. You know, there, there are do's and don'ts. Those are imperatives, right? Those are commands. Don't drop it. Do lick it. Don't start from the bottom, right? And in that, the joy of my children is at stake. It's exactly how the commands of scripture function for God's people, for the saints of God, for, for God's sons and daughters, that God has given us the commands of scripture, not um, for the purpose of us trying to manipulate them and wield them to make ourselves right in the eyes of God, but in light of what Christ has done to now live this thing out called the Christian life and we maximize our joy when we do it because God designed the world to work a certain way. Number five, we can trust and rest in God's promises found in scripture when we're desperate for promises, if the word of God is trustworthy. Proverbs 30 verse five, it says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Now, let me ask the question, I know the answer is yes for most of you. Have you ever clung to a promise of God found in scripture? Romans eight, God's promise to work all things for good for those who love him. Philippians 1, God's promise to be, complete the good work he began in you. Hebrews 13, the promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Revelation 22, the promise that we will someday see his face. Because the promises of God are trustworthy, we have hope in the midst of our personal and communal battles with sin and unbelief. And if you're a person who understands anything of the phrase preaching the gospel to yourself, you know how significant that one is. And lastly, we have a weapon to wield against the devil of hell and his minion army. 
Ephesians 6, verses 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the, here it is, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That, that we've been given a weapon in the scriptures, a sword on the battlefield of everyday life to wield in the trenches for ourselves and for others within the family of faith. Hey, I could go on and on. Just go ahead and write down and email me all the ones I missed. These are just a handful of the benefits of the trustworthiness of scripture. If Jesus has not risen from the grave, then none of those benefits would be ours that you see up on that screen right now. And doesn't that make what we celebrate every Easter that much sweeter? Like scripture is a gift from God that's worthy of our trust because Jesus rose from the dead. Happy Easter. Bible's trustworthy. Proven by Jesus' resurrection. Let me just stop here and say this. If you're, if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you would explore that trustworthy copy of the scriptures that sits in your hand or right in front of you in this moment and that you would search these things for yourself, that, that you would look into the gospels and see Jesus speaking with an authority like none who have ever come before him or have ever come since him, that, that you would look at his miracles and see the authentication of his very message in those miracles that you would look at his life and like the religious leaders and political leaders of his day, that you would find no fault in him because he, he lived the perfect sinless life that you could never live. When you look at Jesus in the gospel accounts, he's living the life you can't live on the way to Calvary to die the death that you and I deserve to die in our place as our sins were put upon him and he was punished on our behalf that you would read of his resurrection, the proof that the penalty for our sin was paid in full, that you would see the numerous eyewitnesses there and they would see the folly of theories like the hallucination theory that would say that everybody was just dreaming up what they were seeing in mass. Or don't do any of those things. Declare Jesus to be your savior and king for the first time right now. Where you sit in your seat, know the joy of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, before you even walk out of this place this morning. Coming back to this morning's passage, I mentioned that according to Luke 24, there are two blessings and benefits of the resurrected Jesus. It's not just the blessing and benefits of scripture that are ours because Jesus is alive, but also the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look at Luke 24, this morning's passage, verse 49. It says this, and behold, this is Jesus talking, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That Without the resurrection of Jesus, not only would the scriptures prove themselves trustworthy and we could just throw all of our Bibles in the trash on our way out the door, but also the spirit of God would not have been sent and all the benefits of the indwelling spirit would not be ours. I'll show you from a couple other places. John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus cannot send the Holy Spirit from the Father without rising from the dead and ascending to the Father, right? John 16, verses four through seven, say it this way. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, that is the Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, because I've said I'm leaving you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
that I ascend to the right hand of God. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If I do not go away to him who sent me, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Anybody appreciative of the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Because Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the Father, all of the benefits of the indwelling Spirit are ours. I'll give you a far less than comprehensive list again for this one. Number one, it's the Spirit who makes us alive in Christ. John chapter three, verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Number two, it's the spirit who gives us assurance of our status as sons and daughters of God. Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Number three, it's the spirit who brings forth the character of Christ in us. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Number four, it's the spirit who intercedes for us in prayer. It's huge, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Number five, it's the Spirit who guides and directs God's people. Matthew 4, 1, Jesus himself was led up by the Spirit after his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Number six, it's the Spirit who teaches us and guides us in all truth. John 14 and and chapter 16 say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Number seven, it's the spirit who empowers us for service, for ministry. First Corinthians 12, verses seven through 11 say, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. It's kind of beating a dead horse here, right? You see this. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these, Paul says, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Number eight, and thank God for this one, it's the spirit who unifies believers, who destroys division in the church. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, Paul says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Number nine, it's the spirit who guarantees our future fellowship with God. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's good news. And lastly, number 10, it's through the spirit that we will experience the resurrection of our mortal bodies. Hallelujah. I feel like a broken man as I start to move toward my 40s. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, I could go on. We'd be here through lunch. You wouldn't be happy about that if you have plans. But these are just a handful of the benefits of the sent spirit of God. 
If Jesus has not risen from the grave, none of those benefits would be ours. Again, doesn't that make what we celebrate every Easter that much sweeter? The sent spirit of God is a gift from God because Jesus rose from the grave, rose from the dead, ascending to the Father and sending us the Holy Spirit. Tied intricately, intricately into the resurrection of Jesus are the gifts of word and spirit. The objective gift of God's word and the subjective gift of the spirit of God coming together in perfect beauty and pairing. That if you have any love or gratitude for the word of God and the gift of his indwelling spirit as you come into this place this morning, you have the risen Jesus to thank. And before we leave, we should thank him. Makes perfect sense to me that Luke's gospel account would end the way it does If you go on to read the final few verses of Luke 24, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That that the appropriate response to the risen and ascended Jesus is joyful worship. How could our hearts not be full this morning? If after I preach, your heart's still not full, let me just, I'll give you an exercise. Go to YouTube and type in the search engine, Dolly Parton, he's alive. And I promise you four minutes later, you'll be bouncing around this building, okay? Yes, even through Dolly Parton, the spirit of God can move. Our hearts should be full this morning. Coming back to what, what I've been attempting to argue Because Christ has been raised, the preaching of the gospel is not an exercise in futility. Because Christ has been raised, your faith is not in vain. Because Christ has been raised, you're not a fool worshiping a false God, nor are you a blasphemer for failing to worship the true God. Because Christ has been raised, you're not still in your sins, amen? Because Christ has been raised, all who have died in Christ are in fact experiencing every bit of what they hoped for. Because Christ has been raised, you're not a pitiful, delusional human being for being in this place right now. Because Christ has been raised, every benefit of the word of God and the spirit of God is yours for the taking. We have reason to worship the the risen Jesus with great joy this morning. So many gifts intricately connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May the display of these gifts this morning compel you to worship the one who secured them all, the greatest gift, our risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ.